coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. I'll do three or four dead drifts and then two or three induced drifts where the fly drops down and then starts coming up again and then drops down and then starts coming up again. Uh, the reason I like that is I can convince trickier fish. All the different species that eat moving prey will be provoked by a bug or a fish or a fly moving away from them. That's Craig Richardson sharing the how-to behind his urine-nipping success, how to catch selective fish, how to find big rainbows under pressure, and the urine-nipping school today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsor, Waters West Fly Fishing Outfitters is your go-to resource for swung fly techniques, two-handed casting, and anatomous fish. Find out why Waters West has built a cult-like following around their fly tying materials and why they are the go-to resource for the OP and beyond. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash waterswest right now to check in with Ed and Kyle and get all geared up to get on the water. Craig's going to be digging into uh, your nipping today. We're going to be talking about the school that Craig is going to be involved with uh, this year. If you want to find out more, you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash euroschool, and you can find out, uh, get your name in there when we uh, turn around and get this going next season. Today's episode is sponsored by Trestle, who you know from their game-changing telescopic fly rod roof rack systems. But did you also know that Trestle just released the only universal bike rack system designed exclusively for the angler and outdoorsman? You can check out this new universal rack system at wetflyswing.com slash Trestle right now to see their full line of gear-carrying products and the Artist Series apparel. That's Trestle, T-R-X-S-T-L-E. Trestle, live your pursuit. Craig Richardson shares his journey from South Africa as a young kid and how he made his way across the pond and, uh, and found himself in, uh, in Idaho uh, guiding with the Rollcast folks. Craig shares his tips on uh, getting prepared for your next Euro-nipping trip, why a tight line can be a bad thing, and what he loves about the South Fork of the Snake. Did I mention that Craig's also going to be one of our guides on the South Fork trip this year? This is going to be a big one. Here we go. Craig Richardson from flycastaway.com. How you doing, Craig? I'm great, thanks, Dave. How you doing? Good, good. Yeah, it's good to sit down with you here. We've been chatting. Um, I've been putting this uh, trip together with uh, Pete Erickson. He kind of connected us. I've heard your name before. You've got a lot of good stuff going on really around the world because, you know, the Seychelles and everything you know, we had Yaku on a couple of times and, you know, that's always a, it's always a place that everybody wants to go to, I think, but it seems like maybe it's a little out of reach. Talk about that a little bit. We're going to get into all your background, but does it feel like, I mean, no, obviously it takes some money, but is that a doable trip for a lot of people if you've got a little bit of extra coin in the, in the you know, in the bank? Yep, it is. Um, the, the one thing that happens out there is most people wait too long to do it. Um, so they miss their prime time where they're, struggling to walk so if you can get to it try get to it as quick as possible gotcha yeah because if you get into your whatever the age is when you can't get around as well then it, it is a tough why is that is that because you're actually doing a lot of walking and hiking and stuff like that yep so the the best part about the seychelles is the the amount of time you're going to spend on on your feet um, meaning that both anglers have more time fishing um, so if you're in a slightly better shape uh, and you're you're willing to move around. The the guides will take you to some really incredible stuff. It's always exciting when you get someone that's that's able and ready to go into into the rough stuff and find something special. Right, right. And so, and that's what it is. It's in it. What else is you know makes that part? Because there's all these you know these species are you can find these in different parts of the world. But why is the Seychelles? What is the thing? Is that part of what makes it so special? So from everywhere else I've fished, the thing that makes the Seychelles unique is the volume and the size of all of them. So when you're walking a flat in, say, the Seychelles and you come across GTs, the, the numbers are always going to be way higher than anywhere else. So I've spent a lot of time in the Maldives and doing a side-by-side -side comparison. Uh, the Seychelles is light years ahead when it comes to fish numbers and, and average fish size. 
Gotcha. So and and we I think GTs we haven't talked about them in a little while, but what is the what is an average size GT, and then what's a big one? Uh, depending where you are, so anywhere from sort of uh, seventy-five to eighty-five centimeters would be sort of the set standard, um, with a bigger fish being over a meter, and then uh, a really big fish. I would I would say anything over one fifteen, one twenty is a really really big fish. One fifty-one, and I'm not always good with the transition. I know the the meter is about thirty-six inches, right? Somewhere in that range. Yeah. And then yeah, that's good. correct. Yeah, yeah, perfect. So good. Well, we'll probably dig into that a little bit today because I think that is an interesting place that, um, and that's a good tip is to get out there earlier when you're still healthy. Um, where is the place when you fly? Where are people, if they're heading over from, let's just say the U.S., where are they flying into to, you know, stop over and then head over there? So right now there's a there's quite a few different options when you're leaving the U.S. You can stop through South Africa, through Paris, through Heathrow, London, um, through Doha or Dubai, so it's all whatever, wherever you want to travel through and who you travel through. But I normally recommend people to to stop through Dubai and and stop and have a day and fish uh, with Ocean Active in Dubai because it, it's a great way just to break up that flight and ease the jet lag. So once you, you do get a, a day of fishing, so you get to warm up and then uh, and kind of shake off the jet lag. Right. So what is the good time-wise? It's kind of a seven-day trip, but maybe add on eight or nine to give you that little jet lag thing? I would say at least nine, at least nine. To be, be realistic, the travel time alone is, is pretty brutal with, uh, with doing between 18 and 20 hours in the air. Um, if that's, that's with having reasonable flights. If you don't have reasonable flights, that can, that can move up. And then once you land in the, in, in the Seychelles and you're in Mahe, the capital, then you have a small like charter flight down to your next stop, which can be anywhere from an hour to two hours down to, down to Farquhar is an hour and 50 minutes. And, uh, that all adds up. It adds up. Right. And do you guys have a lot? I mean, it must be a mix of people coming there, but when you look at your, you know, the demographic or where the people are coming from, is it a mix between like, you know, South Africa, us all around the world, or is it heavily weighted towards one? Um, so it all depends on the year, um, and, and which booking agents are, are doing most of the booking and booking for us. So some years we get piles of Russians, some years we get no Russians and mostly Brits with a few Americans mixed in. Some years we get, uh, Australian heavy. Yeah. Year by year. It's a pretty strange one because you, yeah, you get people from all over, you get Big groups of Norwegians that come through too. Oh right, yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's it seems like it. I mean, I know, you know, you've probably done more traveling than most people maybe listening, but it's kind of a cool place. It seems like the world's just this open thing now, right? You can go wherever. What's that look like? I'm not sure. I know you've been doing this a while, but have you just seen that transition over the years where now it's just like you can go anywhere and it's almost hard to choose because there's so many places. Yeah, that well the. The thing that happened was the the guys from Fly Castaway when they were when they started everything in the Seychelles, there wasn't really a whole lot going on. Um, so the big international trips, there were a few trips to Argentina, trout base, and then a few tarpon trips, but there wasn't this uh, there wasn't this drive from everyone around the world trying to find something unique. And now you've got you've got the the guys in Sudan. The guys from African waters finding all this new, new wild reef, and then there's a bunch of new operations in the Maldives. When I started in the Maldives, there was no one really guiding it. There were a few guys trying, and they weren't they weren't doing a whole lot. But now there's four or five um, outfitters working there. Uh, then you look at look at the Australian guys. The Australian guys is a, are pushing really hard. And finding some really, really interesting fishing, like the like the Vessel Islands fishery, and and uh, getting Exmouth well fully on the map internationally. When you start hearing about uh, locations being spoken about in a fly shop, that's generally my gauge of if they've made it or not. Oh right, yeah. So gotcha. Yeah, that's it. And that's where a lot of the hosted trip or a lot of the trips come from, right? Clients, people coming through and. They start, it seems like everybody starts kind of with the, 
the trout or the local, right? Whatever your thing is. And then as you grow in through fly fishing, you eventually, it seems like people eventually that's like where they end. Do, do you find that when you talk to some of these guys that are kind of older and that's like, you know, most of them is like their first time or do you find guys that have just been salt and they've been doing this their whole life? Most of the time there were, there were trout guys and then they fished a bunch and then they once went with their family to the Bahamas and then that ruined them. <laughs> uh, so but the funny part is all the guys that do this a ton end up doing a, a full turnaround and go back to trout fishing. Oh, they, they go back to dry fly yeah. fishing or something like yeah. that, right? They go back to the, they try to find the most difficult fish they can. That's right. And upset themselves. Yeah. That's it. That's what's cool about it. Again, I just, you know, we all know this, but that's what's awesome is that even you could probably say this, right? You've done all these amazing places and you know, you're never going to stop learning, right? All this stuff. And you can go back to brook trout in the small mountain streams and probably be, you know, with a little tiny dry fly, a little six inch fish and be happy with that too. Yeah. I was, when I was, uh, on some Brandon's asshole, I spent most of my time there and that that's just South of the, the South of the Seychelles. Um, and I remember sitting out there on one of the best permit fisheries on the planet and I pulled out a, a pack of size 18 TMCO 100s, and I started tying um, tying some PMDs for thinking of fishing the Teton. Oh, wow. Now, I've got permit tailing all around me, Damn. and I'm thinking of cutthroat. So that, that just shows it's got more to do with how much time you spend doing it, and it's having change is nice. Yeah, it is. So, Diversity is always good. And I'm glad you mentioned that because we're going to circle around to that. We have this Euro school, which we, we already have the group, you know, ready to go. And we kind of did the, you know, the thing on the podcast, we had our Euro nymphing week and stuff like that. But, um, so that trip's coming up here later this year, you're going to be on along with Pete Erickson. We're going to have a really cool, really cool trip. we got a bunch of good guys, but, um, I want to circle back around that, but let, let's take us back to the start real quick. Cause I always love to hear the story. I know you have some competitive fishing experience. I think you may have some medals under your belt possibly. So talk about that. Let's, let's go back to fishing. How did you first find fly fishing in your life? And then how did it come all into all this world travel? So for me, the, the fly fishing journey was a, a pretty funny one because I started at this little trout pond. Well, it, it was a trout farm in, in Johannesburg called Footloose. Now it was, a, it was a horrible little place, but I loved it. They stuck trout in these little concrete ponds and we would go bait fish and catch tilapia and all that sort of nonsense. And I was standing next to this guy and I was throwing bait and I wasn't catching a whole lot. And he, he was hammering the fish. He got three or four in front of me while I was fishing actual bait. So I wanted to do what he was doing because he was catching fish and I wasn't. So I told my mom and, uh, then she managed to find a Reddington Red Start at an, at an auction. And she bought this Reddington Red Start. She bought it for, for her to start fishing. And then, of course, the kids got in the way. But I ended up uh, taking that and really got serious about it somewhere between four and five. I don't remember when I became more fly fishing dominant, but I just... I just focused on that. And a lot of our trout farms in South Africa will have, um, will have a members area and it's fly fishing only. And that's where the best, all the best fishing was. So if I wanted to get that, I had to go there. So yeah, that was the, that was wow. the start. So that's your whole life. So you pretty much been doing this, uh, you know, it's all you've known, which is amazing. And then you got started early, right? I mean, talk about how did the um, the competitive fishing, how did that start up? Uh, so I, I joined that when I was, I started doing that when I was 13 um, for the youth team. And my, my first first nationals was a complete bust. I, I thought I was ready for it, but I didn't, I didn't touch a fish, but I had a great time. Um, and then, yeah, over the years, I slowly progressed and until eventually I, uh, I won, I went junior nationals. And I, yeah, won that in, it was, oh, I'm trying to think. Yeah. Was that like South Africa or what was that? Yeah, that was in, in South Africa. That was in the Western Cape. Okay. Um, yeah, I won that, which was, uh, which was pretty special. And I a lot of, had a lot of my good friends around. And then after that, I made the, the South African youth team, um, uh, that traveled to France and I 
we competed in France, and then yeah, we didn't do we didn't do too well there, but the the U.S. boys did really well. That was oh yeah, the years of yeah of Noah Noah Thompson and Cody Bergdorf. What year was that? I think it was 2012. Okay, 2012. Yeah, I think so. So that'll be good because we've done a number of Team USA kind of Euro or you know episodes, and I'm kind of we'll connect the dots here. So 2012, great. Yeah, that was yeah, that was the Cody Bergdorf um, and Noah Thompson. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm still good buddies with Noah. Uh, he's doing a lot of cool stuff too, but yeah. And then from there, I went back to South Africa and fished more more of the junior scene. We uh, got a bronze medal the following year at the at our nationals, and then made the uh, made the junior team again, the youth team, and uh, we competed in Ireland where we won a, a team bronze. Nice team bronze medal. Yeah, and that was. The U.S. guys that were involved in that year was uh, Gabriel Watash, Cam Chiaffi, uh, Hunter Hoffler, Hunter Enloe, and Andrew Brown. Right, and this is the junior team. Yeah, and they were the guys that, um, that was probably the best competitive team that I've ever fished against. Senior, well, men's or juniors. They were... Really? Yeah, they were, those kids were something else. This is awesome. Yeah, if they'd all kept going, they would have... Uh, Right, because that's how it works, right? And we haven't actually talked a lot about the junior. I've actually had at least, let's see, we did one episode with somebody on the junior team, but we've talked a lot more about with Devin and some of those folks on, because we have, you know, you have the middle right, you got the junior, you got the, um, you know, what is it, the the normal men's, the the masters. Do you guys have that? Is that the same way all around the world? Everybody has the three, yeah. And they've just, they've just introduced the women's. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's that's, right. Yeah. That South Africa has a, has a pretty strong, women's fishing group oh, amazing uh, yeah so they've been involved competing in our, our men's tournaments for the last i think 10 15 years um and it's they're, they're growing rapidly that's really cool yeah that's really cool it's awesome to hear on the women so so good so you got all that going and then when so and, and just on this timeline i'm kind of interested so you have the the fly castaway right so you got yep. involved with them how, when did how did that come to be well, that was a week after i got well, no, actually, I was sitting in. I was just got our bronze medal at the Worlds. I was getting ready to go back to South Africa and get back to school because I was still in, still in high school. And I got a yeah, I got a uh, message from Tim Babbage, the fly castaway head guy, saying, "When are you back? We need to talk." So I thought I was in trouble, <laughs> um, but. I made some made some time and I sent him a message and he's like, okay, when I land in South Africa, just come to the office, which is our, the Flycastaway head office in Johannesburg. And I did that and when, when I landed, my mom picked me up and took me straight to the, the head office and I sat down and um, had a had a talk with uh, G, which he's the the main controller, the CEO, and then Ryan Hammond and they just spoke to me and try to see if I was interested in guiding and I wasn't the 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 best kid at that um, anything written at school, so I was of course looking for something to get get away from papers as much as I could. And they said, "Yeah, do did I want to go to guide on a tiger fish river in South Africa later that month?" Wow, um, which was they said later that month. It ended up being about five days later. Jeez, yeah. So I was like, "Yeah, sure." Really, your first guiding was tiger fish. Yeah, what was that like? Uh, it was. It was quite intimidating, but exciting. Um, I'm glad that I was so oblivious to danger because of um, the snakes in that area and oh wow, snorkeling a river below a dam that has the densest population of Nile crocodiles oh, in the world. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. I just I was a little wow. bit, little bit of a loose cannon. I was I was having too much of a good time. So, what was that trip like? That first trip. So you're out there. You're a new guide. You're just. You probably had some other experienced guys, but did you have like just some random guys that came up and they're on your crew, or how did that look? Uh, it was myself and a, one of the um, another fly castaway guy, Brendan Becker. Uh, it was just the two of us, and they took us into the into the camp. And Tim Babbage uh, came down with us and showed us how to set up the boats, and we fished for tigers for a couple of days, and then we figured out how to paddle these boats because they were 
pretty bulky and, and quite awkward. What kind of boats were these? Are these like, what's this look like? Is this like a boat with a motor or no? No, no. So the section we were on was a very small, small section of river. But we had two, it was two pontoons with a metal frame um, with a seat in the front. Oh, right. Pontoon boat. Yeah, it was like a pontoon. It was, yeah, they were very awkward. Well, I like made out of wood, like the pontoons were wood? Uh, no, all all steel. Oh, steel. So wow. Yeah. They weren't great boats. I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend no. them. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I had a drift boat down there, it would have been a, oh, right. a drift boat or a raft would have changed the game. Gosh. So how do you catch tigers? Take us to that real quick. Like, So you're out there in a in a metal boat. What's that look like? Uh, it's just like streamer fishing. Um exactly how you would fish for trout here um in the in the u.s that's that tiger fishing is just streamer fishing like you do for trout you fish the same style like downstream and across yeah down and across into structure it's all about getting your depth and getting it across structure gotcha so it's nothing wow. too technical the, the thing that's so exciting about them is no fish hits a fly as hard as they do oh right yeah so they burn your hands yeah they're pretty impressive did you guys on that first trip, did you have some action with fish? Yep. Yeah. We caught piles of fish. Oh, you Brennan, did? Yeah. Brennan caught a, a, a really, just the, the day the clients left, he caught a, a really nice uh, 10 pound fish. Wow. Um, but during the trip, we caught multiple six to eight pound fish, which for tigers, that's, that's not, not huge. That's not Zambezi, uh, Zambezi size, but for where we were, think of, um, Think of a small trout river catching tiger fish. So right, and I would be happy. I can tell you, if I caught like a twelve-inch tiger fish, I'd be happy. Yeah. You know, in clean water. Yeah, exactly. And well, yeah. so you're right. You're seeing everything, and and these fish. So when you bring them in, because they've got the giant, these giant teeth. I mean, the, the fish must just be eating everything. But what's that like when you bring it in? Is it just like a normal fish? Kind of, you know, it's not actually softer. They're they're very delicate, so they're quite frail. You have to be really really gentle with them especially the smaller fish they tend to flake scales much easier than any other fish i've dealt with similar to what a mackerel mackerel would do and they, they are slimy and but they're they're delicate so after the first few i caught i realized that we had to be a lot softer on them um, they're not as tough as trout are yes they can handle they live in a rougher environment than trout but with just handling they don't they don't do as well Especially the smaller fish. The bigger fish are um, like the mid-sized range, the six to twelve pound. They're they're pretty pretty tough, but the little guys aren't. Wow, it's cool. So yeah, you have all that stuff in. You know, you got all the salt, and then you got all this stuff inland, right? Too. Yep. Like if somebody's you know listening now and they're thinking like, hey, this is okay. You gave us the big tip of the start. Get out there before you're too old. And what would you say would be the average age of a person come there? Is this like mid forties, mid fifties, mid sixties? Who's the typical client? So like your standard Seychelles trip, like Farquhar or Alphonse, um, generally you're looking at uh, 60 to 65 where I spent most of my time, which was some Brandon's, which that was pretty nice because uh, it's, it's much harder destination to get to. And we would get a lot of, um, a lot more able younger people that could do the rough walking stuff. And that it just maximizes uh, what you see and what, what you have available to you. Today's episode is sponsored by Maverick Fly Fishing. They make the lightest Euro nymph reel in the world, which makes your rod more sensitive, casting more accurate, and you can hold your dead drifts longer without the shoulder burn. This reel is so unique, you may not even recognize it as a fly reel. I had a chance to fish the stinger reel with Jeff on his home river on the Truckee. The biggest thing that I remember is the weight. The weight really stuck out because you can't even barely tell there's a reel. It's essentially kind of like you're holding a rod all day long. I mean, it's that light. And uh, and when you're Euro-nymphing, that is a key. And the other big thing I remember from that day was catching uh, a fish on my first cast. Pretty cool to be down in that part of the country and, and have some great success with Jeff. Maverick keeps things simple by offering a Euronymph product line with essentials you'll need from rod, reel, fly line, and leader system. Euronymphing doesn't have to be complicated, so let Maverick Fly Fishing get you started right now. You can learn more by checking out Maverick's YouTube channel for some tips and tutorials. And you can also head over right now to wetflyswing.com slash maverick 
to check out the good stuff they have going. That's Maverick, M-A-V-R-K, wetflyswing.com slash Maverick to support this podcast and take a look at one of the most unique and efficient Euronymphing setups on the market. Okay, back to the show. So that's it. If somebody's listening now and they wanted to put together a trip, and it seems like I said, you know, like the challenge is where do you go? Where do you, which fish, you know, what would you recommend? What would be the first step to they, if they want to go out there, maybe the Seychelles, maybe it's even tiger. I mean, I always, it seems like there's so much, where do you start on this? Uh, just figure out what kind of experience you're after. It's all about what experience you would like. There's so much available right now. And the, the best thing you can do, to be honest, is talk to people that have actually been there. And the best way you can do it is go on, on social media and find the tags and see where some, see if who's been there. Like search hashtag Tigerfish or whatever. Yeah, and just send them a message and just figure out. Or someone like, uh, chat to someone like Christian Pretorius or, or Yaku or any of the, that's the thing, the South African boys have tent, has traveled more than most um, because our fishing is, in South Africa was pretty tough and we were we just became more willing to travel for whatever was good so yeah yeah. what is that difference like when you look at south and i always look at this because i haven't been to i haven't been anywhere to south africa africa but you know the difference right u.s you know south africa as far as fishing is that i mean it's a lot different what's that like as far as the opportunities are people into it over there as much well we we do have a huge group of of um of fishermen now, fly fishing is the smallest of, of all the facets. The largest is bait fishing for carp. We've got uh, some pretty serious carp fishermen that make all their all their own baits and flavors and smells. It's, oh, wow. Uh, Carp's huge. Oh, yeah, massive. Um, there's way more money in it than, than anything else. Then our next biggest scene is bass fishing. Um, we have phenomenal bass fishing. What through type South of bass? Uh, largemouth bass. And then oh, we've wow. got... We've got some decent smallmouth bass fishing. I wouldn't say anything that's incredible, um, but but we do have some some really fun uh, smallmouth fishing in um, in the Cape. Uh, so Cape Town, um, the wine the Winelands area. There's there's a bunch of good uh, a bunch of uh, smallmouth bass in that area, and then more inland, and then to our east coast is where all the bass the best bass fishing gets. Um, gotcha. Yeah, there's, we've got a crew of guys in uh, in Cape Town. There's, you may have heard of the Mission Fly Mag. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. But all those boys, uh, they're they're a really good crowd, and they're the ones that that really charge hard in the Cape, trying to find the best smallmouth fishing around. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, that's it. So yeah, you have plenty of that, and then the traveling comes to. And then why does why did you find yourself traveling more? Like you're in this whole area down there with everything you have going, then you find yourself over in uh, Idaho. How does that happen? Uh, so I grew up reading about uh, about the Harriman Ranch. I was given the the Trout Hunter when I was by Renee Harrop when I was really young, and that's what I based all my fishing on. And I, I didn't realize that that it was such a ahead of the yeah such a highly sought after impressive book. I just got given it um i think it was bought at an auction too there was books like that we wouldn't spend a whole lot of money on we would uh find them at an auction so yeah i got that and i read that cover to cover and then i from the pictures and seeing everything i figured out that uh i just i wanted to be on the on the henry's fork and then i traveled all the way out i, I fished with um with rich Paney from from the trout hunter and I fished earlier that season, I fished with, um, Mike Dawes, uh, from world cast anglers and Mike offered me a job and, Oh, wow. Yeah. We, we went from there. I did my first summer out there. I just went out to see if I, see if I liked it. And I, I went all that way for the, for the Henry's fork and then figured out that I love the Teton more than anything. Oh, the Teton. Yeah. yeah. And that's the other one you hear about, but it's not as much. You always hear, the Henry's Fork, the South Fork, the Snake are the two big ones, but yep. it's been cool because we've been doing this series on our traveled uh, podcast where we've been really digging into that whole area. And I mean, there's so much, I mean, you go down to Pocatello, there's this cool, there's, you know, and again, that's just fly fishing, right? It doesn't matter where you go. There's going to be some fish you can go for. Yeah. Um, but the Henry's Fork is, is one of those places. And I hope to get a uh, I hope to get that 
you know, on the pod, them, you know, at least that's the story, right? The house of, uh, well, you got Harriman and then you got the, um, let's see, am I, am I getting that wrong? Is it, is it Harrop? You got the house of Harrop. Yep. That's the flies. Yeah. That's the flies. Then you've got the Harriman ranch section, right? Yeah. Which is the state park. The state park. That's right. Gotcha. And that's where the whole trout hunter and that's where trout hunter became, right? It came out of that. That was the transition. Yeah. It's right on the river. Uh, and the trout hunters, uh, yeah, also a restaurant, bar, and an outfitter. It's it's a great place. That's awesome. So we're going to be, you know, we're going to be heading over there in, uh, October, like early October. And, uh, and it sounds like that's going to be a pretty good time. You know, the weather's still pretty good. The fishing can be good. Maybe not as much pressure. And I think we're planning on hitting the South Fork maybe for a couple days and then maybe a day on, on the Henry's Fork. You know, yep. that's, so how does that look, you know, when you think of that, like, as far as that time, and we talked to Pete a little bit about this, but is that a pretty, is that going to be a pretty good time to hit this up and get some action? We're thinking Euro, you're obviously the focus is yep. Euro nymphing school. Is that going to be a pretty good time to put that together? Yeah, but really good. That's, um, the main thing there, it will be fishing, we'll, we'll be fishing generally smaller stuff. Um, so it'll be teaching control and understanding control of small, smaller stuff and fishing, fishing living bugs. So inducing takes and, and trying to get fish to, uh, to eat a moving fly. Right. That's awesome. And, and that is, and these moving flies are going to be, if you think of like on more of the nymphing stuff, the Euro nymphing. So you were kind of matching the hatch. Is that what it's, this is yeah. going to be like? Yeah. So th- those fish have been. Not so much the South Fork. The South Fork fish, uh, because of the high water through the summer, um, they do have a place to hide, so they do get some protection. But the Henry's Fork fish, they get they get harassed from from middle April. Right, they're getting hammered. Oh, they've got a yeah, they've they've got a tough deal. That, but um, it makes them pretty selective and pretty smart, which I enjoy because it forces you to uh, refine everything. Uh, to catch one of those trickier, smaller, well, one of those trickier, bigger fish. Right. That's always special. <laughs> yeah. And are you able when you're out there, say on the, and obviously it's fishing, but if, you know, we're on the Henry's Fork, these fish have been hammered all summer. We're getting there in October. There's not quite as many people. We got all these, you know, we're going to try to really get down and match the hats. Do you feel like you can find that big fish and target that big fish, even with a Euro nipping thing or oh, how yes. that look? Yeah. So that, that time of year, you'll often have um, the browns will start spawning, so they're out of the game. But there's a there's some huge rainbows. That's to be honest, that's my favorite favorite time of year to fish. Um, I love that the browns move up onto the reds and get out of the way, and um, and then I can I can focus on on a flat water technical rising fish, and for, yeah, fishing like slightly sunken nymphs. Uh, longer leaders and quite an exciting technical way of fishing for them at, at distance. Um, your, your land rate is pretty low because hooking a big fish at distance is, is never, never easy. You mean like at distance, like a quite a ways away from you? Yeah. Anywhere from 40 to 50 feet. Oh wow. And, yeah. Your ways. Yep. And all visual too, or, or being able to see them. You mean see the fish coming up, rising that whole thing? Or, or just holding just, so just watching, yeah, watching the God, fish and amazing. watch them nymph with the occasional rise. I, I love that, and that I found that well, that's what I was missing in the comp scene was I didn't keep going back to that. Um, I was more numbers numbers based, and I missed a lot of really interesting, good fishing like that. Oh, right. So the comp thing is like you could catch. You obviously want to catch fish, but you could catch one really big fish, and that could equal a couple of smaller fish, sort of thing. Yeah, you, it's it's like anything, and uh, if you fish the way out, way I was fishing, you, yes, you're going to miss a lot of numbers, and you, you're going to miss a lot of excitement. But when I was comp fishing, I would miss a lot of what I'm doing now. So, yeah, it's a give and That's take. Cool. Both have their place, and both both are exciting. Right. It's all got to do with what you want to do now. Yeah. So if you if somebody's coming up, and we and Pete mentioned this too that. You know, we could be on the South Fork and fishing and we're obviously getting the, a lot of people are going to want to get their Euro nymphing game dialed in. But, you know, if a hatch comes off and there's some bugs hatches, we're not against throwing a dry fly match in the hatch. Oh, no. Either, right? No, because it's, the, the other thing with, um, with single small dry fly fishing is it's a great way to learn and it's, uh, 
it's also good for people to understand drift because you can see everything on the surface. What I've found with a lot of the urine guys is they're so focused on tight lining and being so tight with everything that they end up being overly tight and affecting everything they do. Being able to watch a fly just drift on the surface, you can just see what current does to a leader and does, does your tippet and it'll kind of forces you to slow down a little bit, stop fishing as, as heavy and stop dragging everything through runs and start trying to mimic the a natural natural drift um if you watch how like uh, uh, a few of devin's um instructional videos a lot of the time he's tight but he's not overly tight uh and that's trying to explain that to people is extremely difficult um there's a fine line between dragging your flies too much and leading your flies yep that's awesome no this is so cool and this is exactly the you know, the kind of the, the good deep dive is what we want to hit on this trip, right? I think people there, it's just going to be a small group of people coming. Um, but obviously we're going to, you know, hopefully do more of these down the line, but it's, um, it's cool because this is it, right? This is what you can't really get as easy on a video, like the one-on-one thing, right? I mean, just you talking about it, you can hear the, you know, this is stuff that I I think people aren't always thinking about. Yeah. It's a, a common mistake. I see most, well, very often when I've experienced urinemphas, just a little too heavy or pulling a little too fast. That's right. And that's what it feels like when you don't know much about it. You're like, okay, I got to be tight line. I got to keep it going or whatever, right? But it's more like you literally are, yeah, you can, bugs are coming off. You're matching the hatch. You're finding a fish. It's really cool to hear. Yeah. So on that fish, so let's take it back to that one. Let's just say we're out there. We see a nice big fish holding. I'm just assuming it's holding in some sort of a, you know, I don't know, a run or something like that. Take us there. How do you, if we're trying to get that on a, you know, a nymph, how would you get that set up? Say if it was 40 or 50 feet away, are you, you know, how are you presenting that fly? Uh, So I would normally present it um, 45 degrees down. Um, So I'd get upstream of him by a little, little bit and fish fish the fly down, down and, uh, and to him. Uh, what I like about doing that personally is I can have a slight bow in the tip of my line, meaning that when the fish eats the fly, I can get purchased on a hook set, but I, I can still, I can still move the fly. If I know he, if I know my drift is going to be bad, I can kind of move my fly out of the way of the fish. So it doesn't put him down. It doesn't drift over him and upset him. So that's I'm I'm very pro the uh, the 45 degree down on difficult fish. That's um, and and giving myself some distance that you can fish directly up up to them too with a longer leader, uh, but that's I find that's less forgiving than than what I what I've been doing because I make one bad cast and I ruin it. Right, and he's gone. And when you see it ruined, do you actually see the fish? Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you see, you see him leave. He's gone. Yeah, completely gone. He's gone. Yeah. Wow. So that's it. So, and we're talking clear. Obviously, this would be clear waters, and yep. which is kind of the Henry's Fork. Is that kind of what it will be like in you know that, that time, time of, of year? year? Yes, at that time of year, it's uh, technical clean, uh, bluing olives. Maybe we'll still have some mahoganies. All the fun bugs. Long days. Yep, long yeah, days. Well, exactly. Well, yeah, long bug days. Oh, uh, long yeah, bug yeah. days. Yeah, that's you, you generally will get your spinnerfall pretty early, and then you'll get your uh, you get your early spinnerfall, and then your hatch comes, and the, the hatches are normally quite drawn out. And that time of year, I, we I tend to fish quite late in the day. Yeah, I fish till uh, like six six thirty, and pretty much until I can't see what's going on. Oh, perfect! Um, and I'm fro- all frozen. Wow, this is great. Yeah, it's it's worth it. That's why I stay. That's why I stay out in Idaho in, into October is for that the first two weeks of October. There's something about the fishing just gets super exciting for me because it, you can do whatever, however you want to catch fish. If you want to throw dry flies, you'll catch them on dries. If you want to nymph deep, if you want to throw streamers, whatever you want to do, you can you'll you'll find consistent good fish. Love it. That's perfect. Yeah. And then after October, so then where are you heading out of Idaho after that? Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm probably going to be heading down to Florida. Oh, nice! Because I'm going through my green card uh, processing it takes a little longer, and I'll head down to Florida. I've got a little flat skiff that I'll tow down with me, um, and go 
go try to spend a bit of time in, in Naples and uh, probably, well, hopefully get back to the Seychelles by the end of this year, if not early next year. We're just... Uh, just going for it. Yeah, just, just waiting to see what, what happens because it's more of a hurry-up-and-wait process than, than anything else. So That's it. That's cool. So you're just cruising. I mean, you basically, you're, does that process of getting the green card, is that a pretty... Well, I guess it maybe is not standard, but does that look like it's pretty, um, you know, that's something you get if you walk through the hoops? Yep. Yep. So, well, I'm, I'm also marrying an American girl. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Congrats. That helps, right? Yeah, that, that helps out a little bit. But if the work visa I was on when I got in here was then O one one visa, which um, it, that allows you to move into, uh, into green card processing. Yeah. So, yeah, not too, not too difficult. That's cool. What is the difference? I, I keep going back to this just because I'm kind of, uh, you know, like I said, I haven't traveled. I'm just curious. You know, you got the U.S., you've got South Africa. Are the places, you know, the places themselves, the people, the, the place, does it seem that much different or is there a lot of similarities between the two? So with South African, like rural South African Idaho is very similar. Um, you, you've got all the different, all the different people doing all the same stuff. Yeah, there's not a lot of people. It's pretty remote. You can find some time on your own, you know, space and stuff like that. Yeah, and and the people that you're, if you go into a bar, the people that you'll find will probably be very similar. Yeah. Um, nice. Yeah, and the rural South Africa is very similar. When you get into the cities, it's um, South Africa is actually. I I find it to be a little more friendly hmm. than the bigger cities here. Um, people just they just seem generally happier. The suburbs are just almost identical they just speak a couple different languages oh right yeah right, right yeah it's interesting it's interesting we've heard that and i love going down that a little bit just for folks that maybe haven't traveled around the world you know and and maybe want to i mean i think that's a cool thing because we had you know like john bond was on he's over in norway talking about his stuff and we were talking about the same difference right what is the difference between that there and here and he talked about the same thing how he's like man people just aren't as stressed out they're friendlier and i think that's part of the you know, all the good of this country, right, of the U.S., and that we have a lot of great stuff going. But we do, I think, get stressed. I think we do work too much at times, right? Like all yeah. this stuff adds to it. And, and then it's like, you know, that that's one of those things. So I think maybe it's something we got to work on, right? That's something we got to <laughs> keep, keep working on, which is fine. Yeah. Today's episode is sponsored by Maverick Fly Fishing. They make the lightest Euro-Nip reel in the world, which makes your rod more sensitive, casting more accurate, and you can hold your dead drifts longer without the shoulder burn. This reel is so unique, you may not even recognize it as a fly reel. I had a chance to fish the stinger reel with Jeff on his home river on the Truckee. The biggest thing that I remember is the weight. The weight really stuck out because you can't even barely tell there's a reel. It's essentially kind of like you're holding a rod all day long. I mean, it's that light, and uh, and when you're Euro nymphing, that is a key. And the other big thing I remember from that day was catching uh, a fish on my first cast. Pretty cool to be down in that part of the country and, and have some great success with Jeff. Maverick keeps things simple by offering a Euro nymph product line with essentials you'll need from rod, reel, fly line, and leader system. Euro nymphing doesn't have to be complicated, so let Maverick fly fishing get you started right now. You can learn more by checking out Maverick's YouTube channel for some tips and tutorials. And you can also head over right now to wetflyswing.com slash maverick to check out the good stuff they have going. That's maverick, M-A-V-R-K, wetflyswing.com slash maverick to support this podcast and take a look at one of the most unique and efficient Euronymphing setups on the market. Okay, back to the show. Well, this is good. I feel like we've been around a little bit around kind of, you know, the world really. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, we talked a little about South Africa. Let's go back to that trip real quick. We're kind of bumping around here, but this is kind of the way I, I like to roll on this. But so we talked about, we're obviously putting together this Euro school trip. So we got that dialed. If anybody wants to get to that, we'll put a link in the show notes to, you know, on that more details. But if somebody back to that trip, if, if we're planning a trip over to kind of Seychelles, you know, South Africa, somewhere in there, um, you know, find something you love. Let's just say it's, let's say they want to catch a GT. Yeah, that's it. Like, I want to catch a GT. I want to catch maybe some other species. Do you usually go there thinking GTs, or do you go there thinking I'm going to go for a few different species in the salt? 
Um, so that that's also got to do with with which atoll you choose, because certain atolls are um, fish specific. Like you wouldn't you wouldn't go to to Poivre and uh, and think, hey, I'm just purely going to chase GTs the whole time. That's more of a permit fishery, and you're not going to go to Providence and think, oh, I'm only going to target permit. Yes, they are around. Yes, you may have a few shots. But there are the primary fish there, which Poivre is the primary fish is permit, and uh, Providence the the primary fish is GTs. So, and when it comes to bumphead parrotfish, that's also a really big one. That uh, people just think that you go to the Seychelles and you just catch bumphead parrotfish, um, and that's not the case. They're only found consistently on feeding on two atolls, and that's Farquhar and Providence. Okay, so. Yep, so there's two. Yeah, that's where having the intimate knowledge and reaching out to the right people and just sending them a message, hey, what do I need to know about here? Like, what do I need? That always makes the makes the difference. That's a good starting point. And probably the biggest part of that is getting the right group, whether that's like Fly Castaway or right, whoever is, you know. Yeah, Fly, Fly Castaway or Alphonse Fishing. Or they're, Alphonse. Yeah, they're, they, they, both do a, they both do a very good job. Yeah, um, that's right. All... All the guides, it's like outfitters out, out here. All the guides are solid. The guides won't survive if they're not. That's right. Yeah, you can't be a crappy guide in some of these places when people are coming to pay a lot of money, right? You, yeah. That gets weeded out. So yeah. so the humphead parrotfish, and that is an interesting fish. I mean, that is a really crazy, do they all have, I mean, how would you describe the body morphology, like the way that thing looks? Like, why does it look, it looks like an alien creature. Yeah, it looks It looks like a mistake. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's just a coral crusher. It's got oh, a big whole, right. Yeah, that's all. Its whole life is making Damn. sand. That's all. It's they crushing do. coral. Yep, they eat coral and make sand. That's it. Amazing. So it just uh, literally rams coral and just breaks up with its forehead. Oh uh, no! Just no. with its beak. No, it's, oh, with its, its beak. Yeah. So i I've asked I've asked around about the bump on their head, and no one could give me a, a solid a solid reasoning why they would have that. It, they don't make that head doesn't make sense to me because it's they go and they sleep at night, they hide down on the bottom in the coral, and I, it just doesn't make sense why any creature would have that face. No, because it's got a giant. So you're saying it hits it just above its mouth. It, that's where yeah. it hits the coral. But the the big giant form, like whatever it is on top of its head or its forehead, is not for anything. No, just it's looks just, cool. just, yeah, it's just for looks. And maybe, well, maybe it could be like a sexual dimorphism thing, right? Where it's like attracting that, mates or something. Yeah, that's what it. That's what it could be. But the the bigger fish tend to be female, just oh. like, like most. Yeah, so okay. that's one of those fish that we we need to do a whole lot more. Yeah, with deep deep breeding. Wow, what's that fish like compared to a um, to a GT? Uh, couldn't be more more different. different. Where yeah, they're they're more like grazing cattle. Um, I find them to be like like cattle because they're always in a in a herd. They're chomping their way through a flat. Um, but and then a GT is just uh, a really really aggressive. Uh, like a, I'm trying to find an animal to compare them to, but there there's no animal that's always angry like they are. Oh there's really? No, yeah, there's no there's no situation where they're they're just happy to be there. They're just trying to kill things and run around. And yeah. Everything is full speed for them. Oh, man. So when they hit, yeah. yeah, when the GTs hit, it's just just make sure your line doesn't get cut on your foot sort of thing. Yeah, or your reel or anything, and or your GoPro on your chest. That's why guides don't like GoPros. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, you lose a lot of fish to GoPros. Oh, so. man. Okay. <laughs> And then, and then these guys, these little parrotfish are just kind of hanging out and they, they hit and it's probably a fight, but it's not, you know, it's not the same. So the, the parrotfish fight really hard for what they are. Um, but they, they eat crabs. So they eat a little softer on the bottom, like permit would, they'll tail on it. And then you set the hook and hope you get him in the corner of the mouth or somewhere around his mouth because their beaks are hard. They've got, um, beaks like a bird, but they're extremely hard. Um, sometimes the fly will just hang in there and they'll just bite through it. Just bite straight through the hook. Uh, yeah, like a bolt cutter. Wow. So yeah, they're uh, they're pretty pretty amazing fish and they they bump bump head 
you have to fish them relatively light, so lighter leaders, lighter tippet. Um, so somewhere around the 20-pound range, and then they take off. And a big fish, like a really big one, is um, over a meter long. So I would, I would assume any, a fish like that would be somewhere between sort of uh, 50 and 60 pounds, those big ones. Right. Yeah, they get big. Um, and I'm looking at one here. This is probably not a bump head, but it's a... Uh, it's definitely some type of a parrotfish, and there's a guy, a scuba diver, and the fish is like longer than him. That's probably a bump, different type, but yeah, yeah, some get big. <laughs> some get yeah, big. They, they, they get big. You don't you don't really want to mess with one of those really big ones on a nine weight. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. But yeah, that's that. They're, they're pretty special. The the fish that really draws people's attention in the Seychelles is everyone goes there for GTs and ends up loving trigger fish. Oh, and triggers. Yeah, yeah, triggers are my favorite of them all. Right, and what is trigger now? Separate the triggers from the other ones. Um, every single one is unique. They never act the same. So every time you step up to a trigger fish, you're on a new a new course, uh, and you have to try and figure them out, and then and then catch them because some will the fly will land and they'll be super aggressive, rush over and eat it, and hook themselves and do everything for you. And um, some you'll make a cast and they'll sprint over to the fly and then follow it for 40 feet to your rod tip and then swim back to where they were were and carry on feeding and you do it again and over and over and then some will uh they'll see you in the distance and and spook but they won't spook straight off the flat they'll zigzag up and down scaring everything within a mile of you so that you don't see any more fish they just tell everyone that you're there and they've They've got confidence in themselves. They've, they'll, they're willing to fight anything bigger. So, like, uh, you've got any GTs that will swim over their nests or dolphins, what, whatever comes over their nest, they're ready to throw down. Oh, man. Yeah. We'll see videos of, uh, of divers getting beaten up by them and having chunks bitten out of them. Oh, nice. Yeah, well, I'll try yeah. to find a video and throw that in the show notes <laughs> of the triggers. Yeah, and they're also unique, right? I mean, looking, yeah. they've got all these crazy colorations and totally all diverse, right? And really unique eyes. Their eyes are stunning. Oh, really? What's the, what are their yeah. eyes? What's what's their um, eyes? They, they look like they've got Maori uh, tattoo patterns on the on their eyelids. Oh, what, wow. what would be their eyelids? Um, I'll have a look through my photos and uh, and, yeah. and send send one through. Oh, that'd be great. Send, yeah, I've got a, a pile of them. So. Oh, good. Yeah, we'll, we'll throw that and maybe use that in the show notes as well, and and get that out there when we do, when this goes live. This is cool. Uh, what do, what do you think? I mean, there's so many fish. You know, kind of we're talking about a few of them, but are there any? Are there still lots of fish out there to be explored? Do you think other fish that are similar that people haven't really gone after yet in the salt? Yeah, yeah. There's um, there's a big push for the emerald scale parrotfish and blue parrots in uh, like um, with the with Nikolai, the Italian guy in the Red Sea, um, he's he's gone all in, and then a buddy of mine, Peter Kutsia, is also all in on the parrots. And the th- parrots are everywhere. You'll find them in every every salty body of water. Oh, wow. They're somewhere around. Nice. And well, the, in warmer water, that is. And they eat crabs, and they fight really hard, and they're visual. You can see them tailing, and you can stalk them, and you can get close and catch them. They're awfully exciting. They get very big. They, yeah, they just don't have a downside. Yeah, so parrotfish are good. That's that's good to yep. hear. Another another species to add to the list. I was thinking when you <laughs> yeah. said the emerald, I was you know Jeff Curry obviously is one guy that comes up a lot because he's always chasing something. I think he m- might have mentioned that on the last episode um, that he did. But so tell me about Pete real quick. So Pete, um, I'm just guessing you met at World Cast, but you know he's got the the. Um, you know, kind of Team USA connection too. Does do you see that as a lot? It seems like you know you guys are both competitive fishing. Is that just lucky that you ran into the world, or is that is there something specific to that part of Idaho that has this uh, um, comp stuff? Uh, so there's actually a, a decent amount of uh, competitive guys, and well, ex-competitive guys. I don't see a whole lot of current competitive people. So Jeff Curry was my neighbor for a for a while. He was just across the street from me. Oh wow! Um, yeah, so I but I've known Jeff for a, for a long time. I I fished with him on my my local rivers back in South Africa. So I took took him out five or six years ago. We fished uh, for large scale yellowfish and and um, smallmouth yellowfish. But yeah, there's so there's Jeff Correa, there's um, uh, Dan Owis, 
Um, yeah, Mike, Mikey Hempkins. Yep. Uh, I'm sure there are a few others. Oh, right. That, those are the guys that I'm that that I know. But they're all the yeah they all work for Worldcast. Yeah. Or or work for Worldcast. That's uh, except for except for Jeff. But Jeff came in and hangs out in the parking lot and tells us all these all interesting travel stories. Right. I know. Yeah. He's he's definitely unique. He's got some. Uh... Because oh, yeah. and he's the history, right? He goes way back to the start of at least in the U.S. the Team USA, right? When it changed over, and like I think he had the first one of the first medals, maybe. Yep, yep. When he started making FIPS change rules. Oh, is that what happened? They they changed the rules. Oh yeah, they, every time someone does someone does something particularly awesome and wins, they change the rules. Oh, they do. Yeah, make it every, harder just to make oh, it harder. Yeah. yeah, yeah, more more difficult. So, what was the rule? What was the one that Jeff changed? You're not allowed to swim across your beats anymore. He swam across his beat. Yeah, because he wanted to get to the other side. So, yeah, thank, <laughs> thanks, Jeff. There you go. <laughs> That's awesome. That's perfect. Right, good deal. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take us out of here just as we begin to wrap this up here. Um, I want to go back, you know, back to the Idaho because this trip's coming up here. And I want to just focus. So we're... I think we're doing, um, you know, I think we're going to be there like three full days fishing, something like that. And um, what is the first day going to look like? So if we, you know, I don't know, we don't know exactly because depending on conditions, but if we say we're starting on the, out on the South Fork, um, does that look like, you know, we're going to be rolling up, getting the drift boats rolling, getting out early, late? What, what, how do you picture that? Uh, probably leaving around sort of 8, 830 because you do want a bit of sun on the water. Okay. Um. And then, yeah, jump in the drift boats and then float to wade. Oh, okay. Uh, so there's certain areas that are going to have, that time of year, have high numbers of, of, of uh, rainbows and cutthroat. And there's certain areas that are going to be just packed with whitefish, with as many whitefish as you could ever want. Uh, and what, what we would try and do is focus on getting into these areas of high fish numbers um, and just fine-tune technique. Because one, you'll catch the first, say, six to eight pretty easily. And then after that will be the fine-tuning. Because you know there's more in there, so now you're going to figure out how we're going to get the rest of them out. Um, and that's going to be the that'll, – that'll most likely be the game plan on the South Fork. Um, and understanding why the fish are there, uh, what, depth, uh, what depth they respond to the flies the best. Right. Yeah. How do you figure that out when you're when you're in there? I know we're not going to dig deep into all this, but if you're if you're doing the nymphing and you got these fish, you know they're in there. How do you find that right depth? Um, so it's normally just watching their body language if you can see them. Um, if you can't see them, generally trial trial and error with a little bit of experience from previous bug hatches time of year. But that's that's all. Once once you're on the water and you put a rod in your hand, it's a lot easier to explain. Oh yeah. 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 Right. So yeah, exactly. You don't, because you don't know there could be bluing dolls, different times of that emergence and other bugs coming off. So yep. that's going to, you know, what would be a good, uh, Euro nymph to put on, you know, matching a, like a bluing doll of, uh, so any small, small olive, uh, like light olive, uh, or a medium olive thread body with a, with just a black collar and a, I find a copper bead or a gunmetal bead. Okay. Um, inside in a size 16 or an 18. No, nothing too crazy or fancy. Uh, yeah. Nothing, no big spot, hot spots or anything like that. No, just, just simple drab. If you, yeah, if you look at all the, all the competitions where hatches are important, where they have consistent hatches, the guys that do the best, the guys that fish drab flies, drab flies. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, just dull, boring. Okay. So when do the hot spots, when does all that, because that seems like the all the craziest colors you can imagine. It seems like everybody's you know into that. When, when are those good to use? Uh, those are generally good searching patterns when there's not a whole lot going on. Um, the, I've, I've seen some scenarios where in a hatch, the hot spot has been more beneficial, more so like a red tag or, or a blowtorch, that style. And I, I generally find it's more got to do with caddis hatches than anything else for caddis pupa. Uh, just the shape of the fly and the, the body shape really looks like a caddis ascending. Right. And, and is that how you fish it when you, if we are on, let's just take these blue winged dollars for a sec. If 
we, we think we're kind of trying to find the right depth. And when we're drifting that, how are you drifting your Euronymph through? Like, how has that looked? I know it's hard to explain completely, so, but yeah. Yeah, so with a, with a fish, if I'm Euronymphing, um, with that, I would try and get my flies down to the bottom as quickly as possible and then slowly lift the rod, inducing the fly, so making the fly ascend like it natu naturally would. Now, my first few drifts would, would be dead drifts, um, I do three or four dead drifts and then two or three induced, uh, induced drifts where the fly drops down and then starts coming up again and then drops down and then starts coming up again. Uh, the reason I like that is I can convince trickier fish, fish often freak out all sorts of all the different species that, um, that eat moving prey will be provoked by a, by a bug or a fish or a fly moving away from them. Some reason they or they, they'll respond in some way and that'll give you an, an understanding of what to do next. Oh, well, even a small little blue winged all bug moving yes. away from them. Yep. They, that's, I'm sure you've heard the lake fishermen talk about hanging your flies. Yeah. Changing your direction. That's the same premise as what we're doing here. Gotcha. Yeah. Wow. So that's it. So we're basically... You know, if we can see the fish, that's one thing, like we were saying. And I mean, how close can you see the fish? If you're fishing, I mean, how close can you get to these fish without spooking them if the water's fairly clear? Uh, if you're if you're quiet and a good wader, those fish, I've, I've gotten within four or five feet of them before. Oh, on clear water? Yep. Um, just sneaking up on them, trying to get as close as possible. But the problem is that that distance is fishing them. Oh, um, right. Yeah, just... Any line, color, or movement, they're gone. They're so, gone. What is the perfect, do you think, the, the good distance? You talked about 40, 50 feet. You got four feet. What's a good, you know, what would be a good for an average person out there is like 20 uh, feet? Yeah, 20 to 30 feet is probably the most comfortable. The easiest to fish, the easiest to stay. It will keep your profile low. That's it? Yep. Well, this is exciting. I, I can't wait to get uh, put this together because I think, you know, like I said, I've been talking to the guys and people are fired up and, you know, with Pete and... And we're going to do the school too. So we'll have a little bit of a, you know, I mean, essentially it's still, a, you know, a guide trip, but we're going to do yeah. a little bit of education and have some uh, content information that people can, you know, review all that. But um, yeah, I'm excited. And I'm not sure who the other, I think Pete's going to set that up, the other uh, guides we have, but um, we'll follow up as we get closer because right now it's, uh, it's early. It's, we're actually, yeah. everybody's jonesing to get all on the water, right? And get <laughs> fishing. And then we're going to be on the other end of, of the summer before you know the cold's coming in which is great yeah that that's the better side yeah it's the better side so what why is this early side it's a, what is it right like where are you right now are you in i'm, I'm in los angeles right now um, okay. i'm working for bob marriott's fly shop oh wow uh, yeah um, in, LA, in la that's a place you don't always hear about oh no it's an, and it's for good reason the fishing here is terrible it is um, yeah it's no good no no the the only thing good about it is lax <laughs> You can you can get anywhere else quickly. Oh but, right, you know, the, yeah. The fishing here is very limited, and um, yeah. What about carp? There must be some carp fish in there. Uh, yeah, this year it's been a little bit brutal on them because of all the flooding. Oh, the flooding, right? Yeah. So God, it's been a crazy year. Yeah. Yep, but hey, it's good for it. Hopefully, the fishing improves. And yeah, yeah, gotcha. Cool. Well, let's take this away, Craig, with a quick little, just like two minute drill. We're going to try to get out of here in a couple of minutes. I got like some rapid fire questions that it should be easy for you and we'll, yep. and we'll zip out of here. So I always love to get a little music. Uh, this maybe sometimes is hard, but could you give us a band, something to put in the, in the show notes, uh, something that you like listen to either, a, you know, group uh, or camp. So camp C-A-A-M-P. Okay. They're a, yeah, they're a bunch of guys from Ohio. Oh, nice! Great music, yeah, great, great music, and they, um, yeah, they they fish the Henry's folk. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. There you go, perfect. All right, we'll get we'll get some music from camp out there. And uh, what's what's your fish? What's your bucket list? What's the one you really before you know you really want to hit next? You haven't done, um, or have you done it all? Have, have you done so much? It's like you, it's kind of hard. Uh, the yeah, the next fish I want is the next fish in front of me. Yeah, but uh, you don't care. Uh, not really. The I think probably the the highest on my list would be probably a, a blue bastard in Australia. Okay. That would probably be pretty fun. Yeah, blue bastard. Okay, cool. Uh, we haven't talked conservation. I always love to get a little bit of that. We've got the Henry's Fork Foundation. We did an episode with them. Is there Are there any conservation groups that you know of in, 
you know, the Seychelles, that area, or do you get much into that that we can highlight here? Um, so it's, there's a little bit, but it's, uh, it's all run by the outfitters. So Alphonse have a really good tracking program and fly castaway did a long, well, they did quite a few seasons of genetic sampling of all of our fish, trying to understand aging and uh, genetic variation. That was always interesting, but to be honest, the only people looking after those fisheries are the people that, uh, that guide them. Yeah, that's it. The guys, because that directly impacts them and the, the money around it. So if you, if you destroy your fishery, you're not going to have money to make. So Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, we'll send everybody out to, I guess, worldcastanglers.com if they want to track yep. you down. Yep. Great. And of course, we'll get links to the show notes to our um, kind of the Euro stuff we go on, uh, have going with the Euro school and, and all that. But uh, yeah, Craig, I want to thank you for all the time today. This has been fun to connect with you finally. I know Pete gave me a heads up and I'm excited to put this together. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep in touch with you until we uh, head towards October. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Dave. It was great to chat. There we go. Wetflyswing.com slash 457. 457. Check it out right now. You can uh, get a little of uh, Craig's extra content there. I think we're going to have some uh, some bonus uh, bonus videos as normal. All right. If you get a chance, uh, it would be great if you could share this episode out and uh, share the love with somebody who needs to learn about your niffing. I know for me, it took me a while um, to get over that hump. And, uh, and I know uh, that talking and listening to somebody like Craig can help out. So share the love. All right, what do we have coming up next in the next couple of weeks? Let's take a look here. Next week, we got Jeff Liske coming back on, and this has been a very popular uh, show we've been doing. This is the Great Lakes Dude podcast, and we got number three coming where Jeff's going to finish up that steelhead step-by-step. Step. I know people are loving this, so mark your calendars right now for uh, June 8th. You're going to hear Jeff break out more of his magic. Okay, I'm going to let you get out of here right now and uh, get ready for your next trip. Hopefully, you're preparing for some good stuff this summer. And I hope to connect with you on the river, on the water, online. And I hope you're having a great afternoon, great evening, a great morning, wherever you are in the world. And I will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.